0: Good morning. As you head back to your seats, uh, my name is Anderson. If I haven't had the the privilege to meet you, appreciate that. Fan club over there. Um, I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here on staff. If you're new with us, um, this is a weird season to be new at our church. Mostly because our two lead pastors, Spencer and Jordan, are on sabbatical. And so for the last month, anyone you've seen preach, they're not the lead pastor. Over the next month, anybody you see preach, still not the lead pastor. Okay, so if you see a bald guy in a month, that's the lead pastor. OK I hope he's still bald. He might have hair. He changes it up sometimes. We'll see. Uh, I want to share a fact with you this morning, and I want you to try and figure out why this is a fact. Here's the fact. Highly intelligent women tend to marry less intelligent men. Now, I know that sounds like, Anderson, that's just your opinion. And I, I promise I'm a tricky guy. I'm not trying to trick you right now. This is a fact. Highly intelligent women tend to marry less intelligent men. Now, here's what I want you to do for the next 30, 60 seconds. I want you to turn to somebody near you. That's fine. That's fine. And that brings up a great point because, uh, you know, highly intelligent women tend to marry less intelligent men. I, I feel like we're on the same page, you know. Because highly intelligent men also tend to marry less intelligent women. But I feel like we're the same, babe. Like we really, we really beat the odds, okay? Um, but here's, so feel free to talk to my, my lovely wife. Uh, 30 to 60 seconds, I want you to talk to your neighbor and think about why do you think this might be the case. Ready, set, go. 10 seconds. All right, all right. Now, in a moment, I want to hear maybe a couple of your thoughts. What I will say is this. Some of y'all married people read this and puffed up your chest a little bit. Oh. Some of y'all married people got really insecure. <laughs> Everybody just needs to chill. <laughs> okay? Uh, if you think you have a good thought that's not mean or belittling or just stupid in general, uh, raise your hand, and I, I want to hear from you. Why do you think this might be the case? Nobody. Hey, what's up? Balance. Balance. So say, say more. So maybe if there are okay, so maybe balance if there's if there's equal, you're gonna clash, you're gonna butt heads, um, there's not enough space mentally in that household. Uh, okay, what else? Yes. It's about everyone has different Okay. Okay. Yeah. No. I love it. So you're saying maybe the reason that highly intelligent women marry less intelligent men is because intelligence is different. You know, you can have mental intelligence. You can have, uh, I've heard of all, uh, spatial intelligence, um, visual intelligence. The list goes on, okay? Uh, I can testify... That the things that I am terrible at, my wife is great at. OK? It's amazing. would recommend marriage. OK. <laughs> Maybe one more. Yes. Um, I came at it from a simple- okay. OK, that's fun. So like- OK. So, so maybe there's a, a, a superiority complex and maybe the more intelligent men and women tend to marry below their intelligence level. Maybe there's a pride issue there. Okay. All of those are, are, are really good, valid thoughts. Uh, and I, I want to, I do have an answer to this, by the way, uh, and I want to tell you why this is the case. But instead of, like, simply saying it, I want to, like, maybe show you why this is the case. Uh, In order to do that, I want you to travel back in time with me to third grade, okay? Third grade. And I'm not saying, like, let's go back and visit Anderson's third grade trauma. Think about you in third grade, okay? Uh, I feel like third grade... Is the first grade that I started to get math problems that sounded like this. If the first train is traveling at 50 miles an hour, and it leaves at 12 p.m., and the second train is traveling at 60 miles an hour and leaves at 1 p.m., which one will get there first? And no matter how long you spend thinking about it, no matter how many drawings you do on your paper, you're going to get it wrong okay? <laughs> there is no logic. There are no rules. Sometime, I, some of those were so dumb, it, it was like, Susie has 11 lemons. Lucy has 12 oranges. How many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? <laughs> Nobody cares, okay? Tootsie Pops are gross, It's the moral of the sermon. But I want to give you a really, really simple one, okay? And I'm going to to put it up on the screen, this first image. Uh, Let's say that we're in a room with 10 people. Eight of them have blue shirts on, and two of them have red shirts. Now, let's say that we had to randomly maybe draw names out of a hat, to pair people together. Is it likely that the two red people are going to be randomly paired together? No. No. It's not. No is the correct answer. There's only two of them. The blue shirt people, there's four times as many, and therefore it's more likely that the red shirt person is going to end up with a blue shirt. It's the same reason that highly intelligent women marry less intelligent men. Put the next image up on the screen. It's just statistics. (laughs) That's literally all it is. And the interesting thing is, as soon as I made that statement and said that fact your brain immediately went somewhere else. You were like, oh my gosh, what are the reasons? I got to think, you you, you make these narratives and stories, okay? What if, what if, uh, uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe there's a pride or a sinful thing. Uh, Maybe there's just needs to be balance. Smart people can't be together, okay? Those are valid, by the way, but in reality, It's just simple math. Let's say that for our purposes, 20% of the population are highly intelligent. Now, some scholars would say it's really only 5%. Who cares? It doesn't matter. The the, the principle is still the same. If there's only 20% that are highly intelligent and 80% are the rest of us, those 20% probably aren't going to meet a lot of other people that are in that 20%. It's just simple math. Now, for some of you, that's a pretty unsatisfying answer uh, because when I asked you earlier to think about why, your brain naturally looks for a narrative, okay? Your mind has a desire to find a cause, but you completely sidestep logic when you look for that that story and that narrative. Uh, This puzzle actually gets used in grad schools, specifically in, in psychology programs all around the world. And it has the same effect. Most of us naturally look for a, a story cause and we completely forget that maybe it's just the odds. So why does our brain do this? What, what is it about us that our brain gets in our way? Why did the basics of math and statistics get thrown to the side in favor of some more complicated reasoning and narrative. I think it's because the the basic things in life are boring. That's like the natural tendency for most humans. Uh, I'm a teacher. I spend all my waking hours uh, around um, teenagers and little humans. And something I can tell you is that when kids first start to learn a sport... They don't care about the fundamentals. They want to spin the basketball on their finger, okay? Uh, when a kid's learning how to skateboard, they're not, they don't care about balance. They want to do a kickflip, okay? Uh, there's something about the basic things that nobody cares about. When a, when a teenager tells me they want to play guitar, what they really mean is I want to play that one solo uh, from Van Halen or Freebird, okay? Uh, there's something in us that, that thinks, oh, those basic things, lame. When in reality, the only way to really get to those cool tricks is if you put in the work, if you focus on the fundamentals, on the basic things. Sometimes the things that we label as basic are actually a lot more complex and complicated than we think. And mastering these basics... Is certainly more difficult than we care to admit. Today, as we continue in this series through the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 6, the author wants to invite you and I to consider the basics of Christianity that we may have misunderstood or overlooked. If we don't get these right, Our foundation will falter. Uh, We will have to nail down the fundamentals before we can get to the trick shots, so to speak. So this morning, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 1, I am going to be uh, focusing in on the first three verses this morning. So Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 1. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation this morning, and it will be up on the screen. Here's what it says. So let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and placing our faith in God. You don't need further instruction about baptisms or the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And so, God willing, we will move forward to further understanding. This is the word of the Lord. Now, the author clearly says, we need to move on from all this basic stuff, but it doesn't seem all that basic to me. He gives you a list, he or she. We don't know who wrote this book, by the way. That's a fact. You can Google it. Um, We don't know who who wrote this book, but he or she gives us six fundamental things that they consider to be the foundation of Christianity. Christianity. Here are the six things that are up on the screen. Number one, repenting from evil deeds, placing our faith in God, baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. So that's what we're doing today. I'm going to unpack those six things. Lord Jesus, be with me. Give me your spirit And wisdom, in Jesus' name, amen. The first basic that the author provides us this morning is repentance from evil deeds. I want you to listen, it's going to be up on the screen, to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. It says this, The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. The interesting thing about repentance and its use in Scripture is that it's not just an action, but a posture of your heart. In other words, this is where it gets tricky. Just because you have stopped sinning doesn't necessarily mean you have repented. According to Jesus, the order of things in this text is repent and believe. Repent and believe. Uh, there have been seasons in my life when I have left sin behind me, but I have not pursued God in front of me. In other words, I have repented, but not believed. The action was there, but the heart posture was not. Repentance is not just leaving your sin behind, but it's also saying, I'm leaving it behind because what is before me is better and more beautiful and more worthy of my affection." In Hebrews 6, the author's phrase for this first basic is repentance from evil deeds. Uh, But repentance is only possible when evil is recognized and named. The biggest thing that has kept me from repentance in my life has been an unwillingness to admit what is evil in my life, what was sinful. The the first step in, in repentance is choosing to see clearly. And once you see, you choose life and you turn away from death. If you can hear the sound of my voice this morning, speaking of that, I heard a, sorry, this is a total, this is not my notes, speaking of if you can hear my voice this morning, uh, I heard a little birdie tell me that Spencer Lohman still listens to the podcast while he's on sabbatical. And this is the only way that I can communicate to you, Spencer, wherever you are. So listen, if that's the case, Spencer, I love you. I can't wait for you to be back. I miss you. But stop! You're breaking the rules. Go rest, read a book. Love you. See you soon. (laughs) But if you can hear my voice this morning, there is more than likely sin in your life in some form. The invitation is different for each person this morning. For some of you in this room, Jesus is inviting you to see to see what is sin and what is righteousness, and maybe to finally admit and name what is wrong in your life. For others in the room, the invitation is to finally drop that thing that you've been carrying that you know is wrong and to pursue life in Christ. For others, the invitation is to ask God to change you, to transform your heart so that true repentance can take place inwardly as well as outwardly. We have to repent and believe. Many of the Gospels proclaim these words, including the one I just read. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So this morning at Emmaus Church in the middle of July, repent, my friends, the kingdom of heaven is near. The second basic in Hebrews chapter 6 is placing our faith in God. I really love the language in the NLT of placing. It gives gives me this image of holding something and then setting it down. Faith is not created or conjured up. You already have faith. I don't care how bad or good your relationship with the Lord is. You've already got faith. Every human on planet earth has faith. The difference is where you set it down. Part of the mystery, somebody write this down, you can always have more faith, but you can't have less. You can always have more faith, but you can't have less. Even if you lose faith in something, the faith doesn't disappear. It just gets relocated. It is placed somewhere else. Somebody write this down. Faith can't be decreased. It can only be displaced. If the thing I put my faith in proves itself time and again to be trustworthy, my faith will increase and it will strengthen. The longer that you walk with Jesus and spend time in his presence and you see that he actually is who he claims to be, the more your faith will increase, the more it will strengthen. So the, the question then becomes, what is faith? And there's like a billion definitions, okay? Mine is simple. It's trust. Faith is another word for trust. Who do you trust? What do you trust? The interesting thing uh, about how Jesus talks about faith is that it's clear that faith starts so small, but it can grow so large. I want to turn to Matthew 17. It'll be up on the screen. Jesus says this to his disciples. You don't have enough faith, Jesus told them. I tell you the truth, even if you had faith, even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. Nothing would be impossible. In other words, if you take just that smallest step of faith, you open yourself up to an infinite realm of possibility in Christ. Can you remember the very first time you ever drove a car? The very first time. How many of you, hands up, were a little bit scared, like nervous? I might kill someone. Oh, God. Um, Here's the crazy thing. You sit down in the driver's seat that first time, and you're nervous about all the things that you're now responsible for. You've got the wheel. You've got the brakes. uh, You've got the gas pedal. I know for a lot of teenagers, uh, the, the ones that I teach, their very first time in the driver's seat, they're super nervous about the gas pedal. That's that's the one thing that just, that's what gets them. But as soon as you put your foot on the gas that first time, just that one small step, you open the door to all the power that that car can do. Slowly, as you get used to it, you gain more confidence in how to use that car to get from point A to point B, And all it takes was that first little moment of putting your foot on the gas pedal. That first moment of faith. It only takes that first moment. Trust Jesus for a moment. And then another. And then another. And soon your faith will be strong. I'll come back to faith a little bit later. On to the third basic. Baptisms. Baptisms. This is a fun one. You ready? Locked and loaded. Here we go. If you're new to the faith, you might have an image of what baptism is, but you might not understand what it's all about, which I totally understand. In order to tell you what baptism is, as commonly is my practice, I want to tell you a story. Okay? Uh, When I was in college and seminary, I had a professor named Jim Lowe. And Jim Lowe is an old Chinese guy, okay? Uh to death, brilliant, super, super cool. Um, when he preaches, he's almost like Mr. Miyagi. He, like, does these, like, weird, like, karate. It's, it's yeah. Sorry. That's like, it's, okay, moving on. Jim Lowe uh, told my, my class a story one time. Uh, because he actually spent a good chunk of the 1970s and 80s as a missionary in Zimbabwe. And during his time in Zimbabwe, uh, as he ministered to these different groups of people, and he, he would spend large chunks of time uh, at different villages, one of the villages gave him the title Umfundizi. And Umfundizi is a Zulu word that means preacher or reverend. And so now, anytime you you see Jim Lowe, he likes to go by the name Umfundizi, which I think is awesome. And Umfundizi one day is preaching to this village in Zimbabwe, and he preaches about baptism he more than likely points them to a scripture like the one we see in Matthew 28. It'll be up on the screen. It says this, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples... To obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. For thousands of years, Christians have been baptized in water. They go down into the water to symbolize Christ dying and going down into the grave. And then they are lifted up out of the water to symbolize Christ. That even as Christ was raised from the dead, you are now raised to new life in Christ. For Christians, it's this physical act of showing that you are dying to yourself and being transformed into the likeness of Christ. When umfundizi finished preaching that one Sunday, many of the villagers asked him if they could be baptized. But they immediately realized that there's also no way for them to be submersed in water. Their only water source was a creek, and it was a few miles away. Every single day, they would take you know, jars and jugs and buckets, and they would go walk for a couple hours, get as much water as they could, walk for a couple hours back, and that water was so vital to cleaning and cooking, there's not a whole lot to spare, and being dunked in the creek was just not physically possible. And so they have this problem on their hands. And so Umfundizi says, well, would you guys be open to me pouring some water on your heads? But they said, no. They said, Umfundizi, you said that the the big important part was the symbol of going down and dying and then being raised up to transformation. So they said, no, we're not going to settle for that. And so They get together with Unfundizi, and they start to um, try and figure out what's a way that we can baptize without water. And they talked about it for a couple hours, and then they landed on this idea. And so the very next day, uh, in the morning, those that wanted to get baptized came into the, the middle of the village, and everyone was around watching, and each person grabbed a shovel, and dug a hole. They dug for hours. And slowly but surely, this hole became more rectangular in shape because they weren't digging a hole. They were digging graves. They were baptized by digging their own grave, lying down in it, to symbolize their dying to self, and then they would reach up their hand and umfundizi would pull them out in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to symbolize that they have been raised to life. Isn't that awesome? Would love to do that. Hate to dig. Would love to do that. If you have not been baptized, my friends... But you have given your life to Christ and you've put your trust in Him for all things now and forever. We want to baptize you at Emmaus Church. At some point in the next couple of months, I have no doubt that we're going to do a baptism service. And if your heart is, is burning a little bit and you think that's something you might want to do, please talk to somebody on the lead team, talk to one of the pastors, talk to me talk to somebody that's, that welcomed you this morning into the building. We want to make that happen for you. Now, real quick, before I move on from baptism, I want to talk to you just briefly about what baptism is not. Baptism is not salvation. You don't get saved when you get baptized. You get baptized because you've been saved. Baptism is not a requirement to get into heaven, but it is this beautiful thing that Jesus calls you to to demonstrate who you are and whose you are. It's it's almost like think of it like high school graduation. If for some reason you don't get to walk across the stage, you still get the diploma. But walking across the stage is powerful. It's this rite of passage, this symbol that shows everything that's been accomplished. Baptism is that kind of symbol. It's a gift of grace to show and represent what God has done in and through you. All right, got to move on. Fourth thing. Fourth thing in the book of Hebrews that he considers, or should, a basic. The laying on of hands. Everybody with me? Roland. Locked in? Okay. This this idea of laying on of hands, this is something that gets thrown to the wayside a lot in churches. We at Emmaus are trying to remedy that for the last as long as I've been here. Um, every single week, we'll have a, a person come up here to this corner and come up to here to this corner, and they're there to pray with people at the end of the service. For the last couple months, we've had pastors and leaders up here at the front where if you want to get prayed over, if you want to get anointed with oil, we want to put a hand on your shoulder and pray for you to intercede on your behalf. Uh, And the reason that the laying on of hands is such a foundational high calling is because Jesus demonstrates and models this. I want to show uh, a few verses from Mark chapter 10 Up on the screen, it says this. One day, some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. When Jesus saw what was happening, he was angry with his disciples. He said to them, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Then he took the children in his arms, and he placed his hands on their heads and blessed them. Now, I feel the need this morning to reiterate something I said a few months ago that is still on my heart in regard to this idea of prayer and laying on of hands. Some of you in this room really, really, really need to be prayed over. You need it. But some of you won't seek it. You won't come forward. And I want to say this gently but firmly. Some of you choose comfort over courage when we gather in this place. Something in our culture tells us that we should, don't ask for help. The crazy thing about our church and a lot of churches is that, and and praise, praise God, we have a lot of people that love to help. There are so many of you in this room that have not only helped me, but I have seen you help people. But some of those exact same people refuse to ask for help when they need it. For, for some, it's a, a pride thing. For some, it's a, a fear thing. And for some, it's, just, it's flat out disobedience. And I have no desire to, to shame anyone or, or bash you over the head, but I do have every desire to remind you that you and I need help. We need to be prayed over. We need the laying on of hands and the anointing with oil. This is the work of the kingdom. It's not magic. It's not some guarantee that you're going to see a miracle right then and there. But Jesus wants to meet you here. Just, Just say yes. Let that be your little moment of faith. The fifth thing in Hebrews 6 is what the author calls the resurrection of the dead. Now, let me give a short warning here. These last two items, number five and number six, are a little tough. Uh, They're tough because they could be confusing, and also because there's a lot of really valid, strong, good scholarly opinions that conflict about these two things. For this one, the resurrection of the dead... Just to be clear, this is not us like going out to a cemetery today and trying to raise somebody from the dead, okay? That's not what this particular resurrection of the dead is talking about. Speaking of this, I have to say this. Y'all know that there's a super old dead dude buried in the woods back there? What? You didn't know that? There's a super old dead dude buried back there. Where's Corey at? You know his, what his name is? I can't remember either. Anybody know his name? I used to know. His gravestone's back there. Uh, and the crazy thing is, his gravestone dates, like, he, he was born before America was a country. Like, early 1700s. Why is he there? How did he get there? Why is there no one else buried with this guy? Uh, I, I I don't know. As a history person, totally like in a non creepy way, fascinated by by that. In fact, I'm so fascinated that uh, I thought it was appropriate during our wedding pictures in the backyard to tell the photographer did you know there was a really old dead dude (laughs) buried over there? And I'm like just spitting facts at her, and she's like, yeah, yeah. She clearly didn't care, and my wife had to rein me in a little bit, but I thought it was cool. All that to say, when we talk about resurrection of the dead, we're not talking about that guy, okay? In Hebrews 6, when it uses this phrase, resurrection of the dead, In reality, this is kind of talking about what people in in modern culture refer to as the end of the world. This is talking about the final day. The day in which the scriptures tell us God will resurrect the bodies of those who have gone before us. And we'll see a, a reunification of body and soul Things are getting kind of weird. But in the scriptures, resurrection of the dead is this beautiful image because our bodies are going to be transformed. Now, maybe this is a, a time to clear the air and tell you that you are not going to become an angel, okay? I don't care what your mama said. You are not an angel now, and you ain't going to be an angel then, okay? Okay? That's not what happens with the resurrection of the dead. We follow in the same line and trajectory as Jesus. When Jesus is raised on the third day, he is still human, but he's different. He's been transformed. Something has changed, so much so that many of the accounts say that the disciples struggle to recognize him. He's still human, but he's different. You see, when all things are over, when the resurrection of the dead occurs on the final day, we will be raised as humans to live forever. Because from the very beginning, God's design and desire for humanity has been good. The problem is not how we started. It's what happened next. Your humanity is not something to be ashamed of. Your humanity is not something that God deems worthless. Jesus has come to transform our humanity into the kind of humanity we were always meant to be. And this is good news because death is not the end. There is more to come. And when God restores all things, he begins with you. He begins with our flesh and bone. Our sixth and final piece of basic Christian teaching, according to the author of Hebrews, is called eternal judgment. This is what happens. Some of y'all know the intensity about what's about to be shared. Um, this is what's happening after the resurrection of the dead. A few questions come to mind in regard to this topic. Questions like this. What is judgment? Judgment. What is heaven? What is hell? And these are questions that are far too big to adequately answer in these last few moments of my sermon. At the same time, I want to make it clear that for the last 2,000 years, there has been a lot of debate and about these two things, these three things, judgment, heaven, hell. If anyone comes to you and tells you there's only one biblical view of heaven and hell. Don't listen to that person, okay? Heaven is real. Judgment is real. Hell is real. But there's a lot of different opinions about what those look like because the Bible chooses to be a little bit mysterious on this one. There's plenty of things in the Scripture, you guys, that are crystal clear Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus died for you. He carried the weight of sin on his shoulders, and he was raised from the dead. But when it comes to final judgment, when it comes to heaven, and when it comes to hell, the Bible is a little bit mysterious. It's a little bit opaque. We see dimly. We get glimpses, but never details. Part of the the difficulty in nailing down this thing called the afterlife is that in the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, for most of Hebrew history, they did not believe in any afterlife. At all. When you, when you die, you die. Okay? Like, that's just, that's it. Uh, and so... The the Hebrew people for such a long time believed that essentially when you die, it's almost like this deep sleep. You just never wake up. You die, you go to the grave, and and that's it. It's neither good nor bad. It just is. It's not until a few hundred years before Jesus that many of the Jewish leaders and religious leaders and scribes started to reinterpret the Old Testament and, and reconsider, you know what, maybe we've been reading this wrong. Because it seems like God really wants to come and, like, restore peace to this world. God really wants to come and, and, like, destroy evil and set up a kingdom. And so, by the time Jesus walks up onto the scene, the typical Jewish theology was was this. Uh, At the end of all things, God is going to come and he's going to resurrect everybody And those who are righteous, those who um, love Yahweh with their whole hearts, and they practice the ways of Yahweh perfectly, will get to spend eternity alive with him here on earth. Those who are unrighteous, they'll still be resurrected, but only for God to essentially tell them, hey, this is where you went wrong. And then they go back to sleep forever. That's that's the theology of the Jewish people during Jesus' time. In other words, there is no heaven and hell. The good get to stay here, and the bad just go back to sleep. So when Jesus comes on the scene, he's got some new things to say about these things. He's got some new phrases and words that he adds to the conversation that puts a little twist on what's being talked about. There's two main differences in Jesus' message regarding these things. Uh, The first one is that some of the language and concepts that he adds, he talks about the kingdom of heaven. He often refers to this valley right outside of of Jerusalem called Gehenna. And Gehenna is then later translated, interpreted as hell. He speaks of this thing called the final judgment, where the righteous enter into everlasting life and the unrighteous enter into everlasting punishment. And while some of that is similar to what the Jews believed at the time, it's different enough to be controversial and difficult to to understand and swallow. As the New Testament moves on, heaven is often associated with joy and the presence of God in a place where pain is wiped out and we live in perfect harmony with Christ. It also, as the New Testament moves on, hell is associated and spoken of as a place of darkness and fire, death and separation from the physical presence of Jesus. But again, the scriptures give us glimpses. They're not super detailed. What is clear, though, is that being with Jesus, you guys, is the ultimate reality. What if heaven was nothing more than being in a house with Jesus? An empty house. If heaven eternity is you in an empty house with Jesus, that's infinitely more than enough. That is infinitely more than enough. Which then leads me to the second big difference between how Jesus spoke of the afterlife and how the, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders did. And this is how I want to close. The Pharisees and Jewish leaders... All believed in the afterlife, but for them, the only way to enter into the kingdom of God when the resurrection occurs was to perfectly and wholeheartedly obey each and every law, rule, and commandment in the Old Testament. Salvation, according to the Pharisees, was about you, your works, your ability to maintain orderliness and obedience and a strict adherence to the letter of the law. But Jesus' message is different. Jesus preaches that salvation is not through the law. It's not through the rules. It's through him. It has nothing to do with you and everything to do with him. Everlasting life and entry into the kingdom of God is not by how good you are at following the rules. It's how surrendered you are in following him. Because Jesus has lived a sinless life, because he loved us enough to bear the weight of our sin, because he felt the sting of death, although he was innocent, and because Jesus was raised to life and is now seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, he is the only road to salvation. The one who has defeated death is the only road to eternal life in the kingdom of God. The only one deserving of our faith. Today, there are a few different calls I have for you in response. For some of you, these basics that we talked about really are brand stinking new. And maybe, just maybe, At some point, you felt almost like a burning in your spirit. You were captured by something beautiful and good and true about Jesus. If any of that sounds like you today, Jesus invites you into salvation today. He invites you into faith and giving him your whole life. When we open up the altar in a minute and we bring people up to pray, please come forward. Please pray with someone. Tell them what you have experienced today. For others of you, these basics were a good refresher, but you really felt moved by one or two of them in particular. Maybe you've never been baptized been a believer for a long time and not been baptized, but you feel that call. Maybe you've been resisting the laying on of hands and prayer. Maybe you feel a a burning need to come to the altar and confess and repent of your sins. If any of these things are true, the call is the same. Come to the altar. Pray with somebody. Talk to us about getting baptized. Finally, for others of you in this room that feel like these basics are exactly that, they're just basics, first of all, that's not wrong. I love that because what that means is that God has been faithfully leading you into maturity and depth. But if that's you, I do want to pose one big question for you to consider, How am I leading, serving, and ministering to younger believers in my life currently? Man, if you think that you are in the deep places, you're ready for the deep stuff, you need to ask that question. How am I leading, serving, and ministering to younger believers in my life currently? Because let me be clear, the scriptures also say that those who are mature should be leading and teaching. And I'm going to go ahead and say it. Some of you have been blessed with maturity and depth in your knowledge of God, but you have zero skin in the game. You are not discipling anyone. You are not leading anyone. You're not helping young believers learn the basics. Your knowledge is deep and your practice is weak. If that's you this morning, again, I have no desire to shame you, but to invite you the call is the same. Come to the altar. Confess your shortcomings. Receive prayer. And follow Jesus into a new season of service and surrender. As we transition into our time of response, I'm going to hear some soft music come over the speakers, we're going to transition into our first response, which is to the table.